from the internet, it's the Local Host Podcast with Mark Drew and Rob Dudley. Hello from the internet. Welcome to episode 7 of the Local Host Podcast. In this episode, we shall be talking about APIs, SOAP, REST. Oh my! I am Mark Drew, and sitting in the motorcycle sidecar on this journey with me through the information superhighway is Rob Dudley. Let's get on with the show. Hello, Rob. How are you doing? Hello, Mark. Is this how we're greeting each other now? Um, for the last couple of episodes, I think so. Hello. So, hello. Is, is, is that we howl at each other in the moon. How are you? I'm not bad. Awesome. Yeah. Enjoying a nice quiet weekend here in, in the not very sunny Channel Isles. Yeah, it's pretty... I mean, it's now winter, isn't it? It's like winter has come, Game of Thrones has ended. We're now in the long dark all the way to till April. Just waiting for the next season. Yeah. So we just... Uh, I, I think it's going to be coming in 2019, I think. This is... This is worse news than uh, than Trump or something. I'm, I don't know. Um, I'm pretty I don't know. It. That's that's pretty much as bad as it gets. Yeah. Um, it does strike me that they're they're twisting the knife a little. Like we're going to make half seasons. Great. Are we getting them faster? No, 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 no. It's going to be longer between the two half seasons. I think the problem in the US is that they have this idea that a, a season has to be. Um, like 20 episodes or something like that. I think we got spoiled by X-Files, so it was like 24 episodes in a season. Um, but in the UK, we have this idea of series, right? That, like, how long is a Sherlock series? It's like three episodes, right? I think they went, oh, we should have gone for series of uh, Game of Thrones rather than season of Game of Thrones. Well, it's fundamentally not seasonal. Right, exactly. There you go. That's so the problem. We're being cheated. Um and yeah, by the way, welcome to this tech podcast talking about the technology behind Game of Thrones. Um, Feel free to skip forward for about another five minutes or so and we will get into the technology, I promise. But a lot has been happening, actually, in the world of technology. Something that has, you know, is winter has been coming since 2012 on this, which is what? It's Sublime Text version 3. I got a notification the other day that it was out and it's now asking me for license, my license money. Which is about it's, good time, isn't it? It's finally out of beta. It's been in beta <laughs> yeah. for, well, since before I was born. Um, there are web developers out there who have only ever known it as version 3 in beta. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, but yes, no, it's in final release and um, it's got some shinies. I quite like it. Yeah, I mean, I haven't really seen anything that's new in it because I've been using the beta all the time. So it's kind of like a gradual change over the time. So I don't know if version 3 threw anything. It's got a new logo. Yes, that's true. Very but also SourceTree, I don't know if you use a, a SourceTree for version control, threw in a new logo at me the other day and uh, a dark mode, which is lovely. I, I want every program to have a dark mode. I, I am demanding that every program should do it as part of it because at the moment I've got like a few programs open that are glowing at me and I'm going... Just do dark mode. I mean, fair enough. One of them is Keynote, and it's up to me what what template I or theme I use, right? So I could put a dark mode theme. But you know, for example, uh, Google Docs, dark mode, please. You know, we're big on even Twitter have managed this on their web interface now. So. I know, I know. I, I was kind of quite thrown. I was like, I I am now developing in a sea of darkness and calm, 
rather than glowing and knowing things. I mean, the content of Twitter hasn't changed, but you know, it's still a sea of darkness. Is, yeah, it's still a sea of darkness, yeah. but now it can look like one rather than uh, than anything else. Um, yeah, so Sublime Text 3 Final um, is out. I'm not sure. There, there seems to be an upgrade path. Um, so step one, try and remember when you last paid for Sublime Text and find your license. Step two, um, work out if you actually need to give him any money at all. Right, because you have to look at the date, isn't it? It's something like after a certain date, 2013 yeah, or something? It, something like that. Um, the good news is that so far, none of the extensions that I use day-to-day -day have had any compatibility issues with the final release. No, that's good. I mean, so it has been I, in beta, so people have had a chance to update it. It's been an in-place upgrade. Well, I don't know. We could have just been like, no, this is fine. I'm going to break a load of shit. Mm, true. Yeah, deprecate some calls here and there. It's, uh, it's been since February 2013th. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a long... That's a long time, long man. release schedule. <laughs> it's like four years, if if my math does right. Um, yeah, that's... The, anyway, but I guess it, it's brilliant. We've been using it... Um, I think version, like major versioning, is a bit of a crock of uh, you know what. I mean, Chrome have got it right. They do updates all the time, and like the version doesn't kind of matter. But in a way, it doesn't matter to us. But stuff that have got APIs that change um, do matter, you know. So, for example, Sublime Text, you might say, well, that, that's a text editor. There's no APIs, but there's APIs for the plugins, right? So, yeah, yeah. Um, if you have breaking changes, you have to warn everyone and uh, deprecate them slowly. But if you have more frequent releases, do people still read the README? Probably not. I'm not gonna lie; I've never read the README on any of the Sublime stuff. I, I just yeah, but you know, it. but you know, the plugin developer, right? You just expect it to work. Are you? I was working True. with uh, Eclipse, and each version, because they kept on naming them after different planets and stuff like that. I think now they've changed the the uh, naming paradigm. Um, so you, they ran out of celestial bodies. Could be. Um, just kind of broke it, right? Because each time they would like release something and the CF Eclipse plugin that I was writing would break. And everyone would like, be complaining, going, oh, you broke it, Mark. Like, no, you've just upgraded to like a bleeding edge version of Eclipse and it's not working. Well, tell me what doesn't work, you know? It's, it, it was a, with Eclipse, it was like a war of keeping up with the APIs that they kept on changing. The war of the APIs. Um, so other news, um, the eagle-eared, what's, what's, what's a good thing? The bat-eared people amongst them, the listeners, might have heard my, me typing last time, and we are talking about keyboards last time. And I have a new keyboard. Oh, I got the new Apple keyboard because I want to now make sure that everyone can hear me typing. I was going to get a mechanical one, like I think you have. You have like a few with cherry switches, don't you? Yes. So yes, like, I do. So do people hear you in, in like, like in France? Yeah. Um, I've actually got uh, because how many keyboards do you need, right? I've actually got three. Um, I think I've right. just gone through the process of dampening two of them. Okay. Wow. Um, okay, that's polite. Dampening of you. makes a massive difference. But does it make a difference in actually the feel of them? 
Or is it um, the sound? Partially, although that it's adjustment was really easy to make. It felt a bit weird to start with, but you very quickly get back into it. Mm-hmm. No, it's more just noise level. Most of the noise that comes out of a mechanical keyboard is not the switch. It's the key bottoming out against the... Oh, oh against the body the of the keyboard. plate. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so if That's you just... That's the dump- clack. So uh, okay. get an O-ring on there and, and dampen it, and it bounces off the O-ring instead. And it's it's not quiet, but it's no longer a machine ASBO-worthy. Right. Well, I think this is one of my, my reticent things about getting a new MacBook, or I'm not even going to get into the battle of, of Mac versus PC or kind of thing, but it's like, you know, I've got I've had a MacBook since 2012. It's the same one. It's still my war, war horse, war, workhorse, war horse, both. Right, it goes to war and it works um, for presentations. And it's a, it's a mid-2012. I'm going like, this is a five-year-old laptop. It's still, you know, going through. But if I have still to... Still trucking. Still trucking, still presenting. Uh, and if I need to upgrade it, um, I want to try out the keyboards. I'm like, whoa. You know, they, as much as they go about this kind of dual-axis... Uh, scissor function type keys and stuff like that they just feel weird compared to the to to the the the, the old clicky keys so i thought i'd try it out first by by getting the keyboard and see if i can get used to it the, the only thing so far has been the arrow keys um the left and right key uh i'm going to take a picture maybe and put it on the podcast but the left and right key so you can see that they're up and down um, yeah, so you've got kind of three keys worth of space, and up and down right. have been reduced to half key size because design. Because design people. compared to something because that can be very tactile, that you can see there, so you can rest. You know exactly where those keys are blind, right? Which is actually again the same space, but they're just trying to take up all of the keyboard. I don't know, but I'll, you can solve this problem by the way by just using Vim. Yeah, I mean, just get used to it. I mean, it, it is like anything. HJKL, that's it. Um, but it's got a bigger escape button, which is kind of nice. Uh, escape! Well, get used to that, because there isn't one on the new MacBook Pros. Is then? Oh, yeah, no, of course, because the the, 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 the fiddle bar, or whatever that's called, touch Well, bar. assuming, sorry, the new MacBook Pros with the fiddly doodle bar. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, and the- that, as a Vim user, is an absolute pain in the, pain in the ass. Oh, you have one? Um, I had one. <laughs> it flew out the window. Um, it, it didn't, yeah. <laughs> but for a little less said about that anyway. But mm. um, I don't know. I think it could be good. The only problem is, is that I have like a few uh, things that use a lot of the function keys um, and that you get to use them quite a lot, Unreal Engine being one of them. But having said that, you know, Unreal Engine have got more in bed with Apple in recent months. So maybe, the, I don't know. Maybe that will get fixed or, or go better. I don't know, really. Um, what else? Um, so we had some feedback. There were some questions about what we could be talking about. And we always seek. I mean, the whole point of this podcast when we started out was to answer your questions, right? But if you don't ask them, we can't answer them. So, But some people have been asking questions, and I think we might be looking into that. But just saying, if there's any topic that comes to mind that you like Rob and I to discuss, just email them. Uh, preferably technology related yeah but games of thrones game of thrones you know any other tv show quite happy yeah because the world needs another game of thrones podcast right because there aren't enough i've got to say there aren't just although to be fair the world doesn't really need another software development podcast but here we are (laughs) but we're better quality than most um yes 
Um, yeah. So any any topic at all related to kind of software development, technology, navel gazingness, um, let us know. Uh, you can tap us up via one of the many at many local networks. Um, yeah. so, Show at localhost.fm. Just email us there. Or tweet us at localhost.fm. That's the easiest ways to get get hold of us. Or tweet Rob or me, yeah, at Mark Drew and at Rob Dudley. Very easy. We're very very easy to find because we're terribly unoriginal. Yes, uh, we don't. Yeah, exactly. We used our own actual names. That's going to come back to bite us in the future. You know, when people start doxing each other and stuff like that. But it's I don't, I don't know. There's not much to reveal. And on that pre- premonition. <laughs> Uh, let's get on with the show, actual show. So what are we talking about today, Rob? Well, um, I'd like to welcome back all those who skipped on five minutes to avoid Game of Thrones and the weather. Um, we are talking about APIs. What are APIs, Rob? They're application programming interfaces. <laughs> well done. <laughs> we had that that not written at all anywhere. Uh, but it's I mean, actually not written anywhere. Yeah, and the, the trouble is I always get it wrong because it's is it application programming interfaces, is it advanced programming no, interfaces. It's application it? programming interfaces. You you were good. You were good. Um as we were mentioning with the sublime text, what they are if you haven't come across them at all by this stage you 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 haven't been in the right you've been watching too much Game of Thrones. Basically, it's ways for people to extend a program. So, for example, in the case of Sublime Text, they were talking about if you're making a plugin or extension, which is basically how Sublime Text is generally built, it has a programming interface. So, for example, can you access items in the tree and in the file tree, or can you access the document so you can add highlighting and you can add completion and things like that? So, the programming interface will will have functions like get cursor or get window i presume i haven't looked at the at the sublime text and we have loads of them uh i think what you know nearly every system has has one way of doing it yeah i think that would be fair to say that every system has one and they came about presumably originally um to prevent developers from just reaching inside and tinkering with the internals of an application to achieve a desired effect Right. So you'd present almost in in the same way that you know when we're we're developing our applications, we write interfaces that other things can hook off of. Mm-hmm. So the API became this this familial constant um, that would allow devs to extend without having to to start mon- monkeying around in in memory buffers and all sorts. Right. Which is where you don't want developers, and you never want you know developers monkeying with your memory buffers. But of course, so like since the dawn of of time, we had like different formats. I mean, there was Corba. I never used Corba, which is a common object request broker architecture, which is, I think they did a backronym there. Um, I think they did. I mean, just to quickly uh, clarify, because what we're about to go on to talk to is actually remote APIs. Right. 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 Not like so non internal ones. Not like not like these are network APIs. Um, so not like the internal one for Sublime, but these are APIs that allow systems to communicate over some form of transport. Right. So yeah, we have Corba, uh, which is isn't that also like the um, UK government's emergency response people? That's Cobra. That's actually a oh, cabinet right, okay, office. Yeah. Briefing room A, like which is it the, does the s- sound like something out of a Saturday morning cartoon. They're the bad guys. Yeah, well, <laughs> they are the bad guys. Um, 
<laughs> no, but I, I thought that was the, the most hilarious uh, acronym ever. Like the most British thing is like Cobra. That sounds like you know combat operations battle thing, but it's no it's battle cabinet readiness uh, away. Yeah, no, no, it's the cabinet office briefing room A, and next door you got Cobra Boo. Which is cabinet Cobra. <laughs> briefing <Cobra>. room B, <laughs> and next to that you got Cobra Crew, which is uh, the next. Uh, uh, no, and that's actually also that doubles up as the kitchenette, right? <laughs> yeah, so. right. Cobra Crew. Uh, so we've got Cobra, which I've uh, I've seen. I've never used in anger. Right. I've seen um, I've seen APIs in Cold Fusion that there was a way of creating all the components, and you could use the Cobra one. You had DLLs as well, I think. Uh, yeah. .NET APIs. Cobra's whole point was. You could basically expose an entire object over the network, right? Right, which is, I think, what all these APIs kind of now have in common on this higher level. Because I I guess before you had simple transports, right? You had like some text and you said like the first few few bits of that text. I mean, going back, uh, I did some of the uh, payment gateway integration into Barclays Merchant Services before there was like PayPal or any kind of form format it was i think it was apex 29 and 28 if i recall correctly back in the in in the 90s and basically you'd send these text files with with the first few bits told it that this is a check for authentication and then the next few bits told it that this was this you know so we're not kind of talking about that kind of network transport which is kind of pretty retro um we're talking about like serialized objects and 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 that's what corba i think became well known for right and I think then came the whole, I mean, I, I was slightly involved, like sideways involved uh, in using like J2E stuff. Um, J2E, not JE. This is like going way back to, to enterprise Java days. And they had RMI, which is like remote method invocation. It was basically a way for you to call a Java class on another server and they'll just talk to each other like if they were, you know, together i think this was the, the beginnings of of the soap protocol um with the java rmi stuff but then i think everyone came on board and said well that's a good idea that's a s- simple idea a simple object access protocol that'll be a great idea soap yeah which is about soap, one of the the least simple <laughs> yeah object access protocols you could imagine right but i mean soap Remain. Firstly, it was. I have so many issues with soap. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go on. Um, I can't even get. I can't even start. Right. So, firstly, the whole point about this kind of standard was it was meant to um, produce interoperability between different languages, right, and different right. systems, mm-hmm. which it didn't do, <laughs> because if you were writing a Microsoft Soap server, you had to um, bend your Java Soap client around a tree to get it actually connected and working, right, and vice versa. There was no interrupt there, at least not easy, and it wasn't simple. You then, you know, fair enough, the actual idea of encapsulating and defining services, I kind of quite like. You know, it's a bit formal for mm. for for most users, but you've got the concept of, a, what is it, it's a WSDL. Yeah, WSDL services file. description language. That's right. Um, which defines what the web service does, and the idea was that it was meant to be self-documenting and what have you, all of which are they're great efforts. They're, they're great things to strive for. But again, they missed. Because a WSDL file is gibberish. It's, yeah. it's completely nonsensical unless you've got some kind of WSDL explorer. Right, so you, you've kind of you gone... a WSDL wizard. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, the things... The WSDL file, for those who don't know, basically said, these are the methods that you can call, 
And as well as as part of that file, you say this method returns this thing. And then it would have a description of what the contents of that thing was. And in, I guess, in Java parlance, that would be a, a, a POJO, a plain, plain old Java object. I think that's what POJO stands for. Uh, which is basically like an object with properties, but they're defined properties. And they say, like, this is what you can get back, um, which is just a, an object with data in it. Um, but then those objects, it became complicated because you'll have an object within an array of other objects inside it and, and things like that. And it will start getting complicated, especially if you're trying to do interoperability between like a, a .NET or PHP or, or something else, some other service, right? Yep. And then came, and, and that was all what, uh, Access on Java? Yep. And there was Access 1 and Access 2. Access 2 is more recent. Uh, and there is no backwards compatibility. It's a bit of the Angular situation that they did a new version uh, and that was there is no compatibility, kind of two different things. I mean, people are going to start screaming at me, but there is, but, you know, from experience, it's, it's been, they're pretty different. So you've got multiple versions of the same protocol, which is no longer simple because the objects it's trying to transmit aren't simple. And then somebody somewhere thought, hang on a minute, we need to think about securing this. <laughs> and then you get something called WS Security. Oh, I've never used this. I've been unsecured. Oh, WS security is amazing. If you were to try and engineer the most over-engineered, complex way of signing and securing an API, you wouldn't even come close to what they achieved with WS <coughs> security. It's it, it's crazy. Just go and read it. Uh, go and read the spec uh, and even think about how you would implement this without a full stack of libraries and look at the number of points where you are going to run into massive interop issues. Um, so anyway, that's SOAP. SOAP's still very much in use, very much alive and well. I was actually consulting on a, a project recently, locally, to build a new SOAP API. Oh, um, a new and, one? Yeah. What, no, no, not Greenfield stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was a Greenfield API, and they did it in SOAP, mostly because most of their clients are, are financial services, right. and they like SOAP. Cleanly... That's why you do money laundering. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, guess. moving swiftly on. No. Um, so, yeah, SOAP is... We can't dismiss it as much as I would want to. It is a huge part of the API landscape, even mm. now. Um, but it is pretty freaking horrible to work with. And because of that, I think now we get to what we call the modern times. I guess the the, the JavaScript node, etc., etc., has actually given rise to... Uh, REST, the representational state transfer stuff, which which used a, a protocol that we all know and love, which is HTTP, right? And it's just absolutely a, a simple way of... And, and the good thing about REST is that it goes over HTTP. It uses methods that we know in HTTP. We didn't have to write a new protocol for it. We didn't have to say, this is how you change stuff. This is how you get stuff. This is how you delete stuff. It's like we had that in the... And the HTTP methods, right? Uh, yeah, so it piggybacks on uh, the the basic HTTP methods. And it was actually, REST was what, first introduced in, uh, it was defined in kind of like 2000, I right. think. Um, it predates its popularity by quite some way. Um, and it was designed to use the HTTP transport. It's not you know, a happy accident. It's not a crazy coincidence. It was actually designed 
to use um, HTTP, and REST was then actually used to design HTTP 1.1. Oh, okay. I did not know so there was that they, they symbiotic. They are really, really closely intertwined. Right. This isn't just something that runs over something else. Um, REST, let's face it, is the de facto standard, I think, these days for a modern API. Yeah. That would be fair think, to say. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair to say. You'd always start, you know, you, by default, if you're making an app, you'd, you'd put a REST interface, you know, yeah. on it. And we'll come back to this, but the key thing about REST is that most of the people who are using it are probably doing it wrong. Why is that? There's, well, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff in, in the uh, the REST specification, the, the dissertation that Fielding wrote, that deals with transforming results okay. um, and, and resources. Um, and realistically, a lot of the time you'll see this maybe um, a, a REST API that speaks like JSON, for example. It, it accepts JSON, it returns JSON. Yeah. I mean, that's kind um, of what we expect, right? Well, yeah, except that's antithetical to one of the key tenets of REST, which was that actually if you asked the API for a resource in XML, it should really do its best to kind of accommodate you or potentially mm. asking for the same resource in HTML. Now, there are some examples of APIs that do this beautifully. I thought it was where, Twitter, um, if I remember right. Or, or a version one of Twitter was very much like this. I mean, APIs change all the time. But if you just en ended with .json or .html or .xml, it would give you the same data, but it just in different formats, right? Yeah. So you can do that based on kind of the resource identifier. You can also do this based on the HTTP headers. Right. Because, of course, we've got client accepts uh, and server um, can deliver whatever the hell that one's called. Um, so content types. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people, to be honest, knock out a REST API and they say, ah, oh, it's RESTful. And they go, yeah, but it only does JSON, which I suppose is kind of okay. You know, mm -hmm. it's not the end of the world. The other one that um, a lot of people do when they're kind of starting out is... Let's, let's face it, designing a REST API is quite complicated. You need to make sure you're making good use of all of the different verbiage. Right. Um, so all of those yummy HTTP verbs. Right. But also the URIs, right? Because you have yeah. to, your, your objects in your system end up being like paths in your, in the URL, in the URIs to, to your API, right? So for example, um, bills, invoices, users, like you do a get and you get a list of users, you get a get on slash invoices and you get a list of invoices, correct? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the basis of um, a RESTful API architecture is that you represent your resources, which probably under the hood are, are, are either models or objects in your system, um, and then you can get them. Um, by and large, REST has done a pretty good job. It's light, it's, it's quite easy to build, it doesn't require that we understand a crazy new networking stack or, um, you know, nonsense like that. It's fairly easy to secure mm -hmm. because HTTP has already been secured. Right. You know, within reason, we, can, we all know how TLS works or we all know how to configure TLS, even if we don't know quite how it works. Um, but it does have a couple of, a couple of issues. Okay. Um, a couple more issues, even. Uh, the whole resource model is compounded by the fact that actually resources often have related resources, right? Right. You, you've got like, um, let, let, let's use one of my favorite APIs, which is called the Star Wars API, the Swappy. I hope not. 
so in the swapper you have like this idea of like people you got planets you got ships and stuff like that right so you might want to know who are all the people within the millennium falcon and what is their average age right so you'd have to go and get you know go and get all the ships find the one that's a millennium falcon go and get all the pilots of it or crew loop through them and then get their age right is that is that yeah. what you mean or yeah yeah and and each of these is a separate network call Right. So you've gone off, you've requested the ship, you get the ship data back, and it's got a list of IDs or related mm -hmm. entities for, for the crew. You then have to go through each of those and make a separate call to get all of the crew. Because these are like separate like resources in your system, right? But that, that have to be related mm -hmm. one way or the other. And one of the things that we learn very early on, I think, in our... Um, in our lives as software developers is don't do expensive things like network calls in a loop. Yeah, exactly. And that's I, where performance goes to die. Yeah. Uh, and it's never mind how fast your language is. Um, it's all based <clears throat> on, on access to, to external networks, right? So, yeah. Um, so REST does a lot of stuff really well. Um, it's great. It's light. It's 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 snappy in theory. It can it can actually mean that you can um, write your application once and have it talk a whole bunch of different languages. So it can return HTML, it can return right. JSON, it can return CSV if you want, you know. But it's not without issues when it comes to actually scaling out and using it as the backbone for um, a, a truly connected system, which, let's face it, is pretty much the point of an API. Right. Just like, for example, uh, um, what we're saying, fully connected system is stuff like um, your mobile getting getting uh, access to this. So now you're getting loads of calls over a cellular network that might be laggy as hell, uh, waiting for all this different data that, in fact, all you need is one label for, for your phone to, to actually display, right? Um, a, a perfect example of this is a tweet. If you've ever looked at the API of a tweet, like if you go and look at the Twitter API and you go and get a individual tweet, you notice there's for those 140 characters that is meant to be in a tweet, you get a lot more. You get a whole bunch of data. You get a user object. You get all the links to the avatars. You get uh, the location data, like uh, the the fifteen different types of IDs that can identify a tweet. I am exaggerating. There's like three or something. But you can get a SSL version of their avatar, an HTTP, no SSL, an HTTPS version of the avatar, the HTTP version of the avatar. That you're going like, well, I, I can do that. I can change that. When at the end of the day, you wanted to get the description, right? The 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 text, the update that 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 person did. So you're kind of like doing a lot of overfetching. Yeah, and that data comes whether you want it or not. Right. Um, there are actually, I think, I can't remember if Twitter does this. There, there have been um, sticking plaster solutions here, which is the concept of some APIs have like a, a slimmed down response right. flag. So you right. can say, actually, I want this data, but I want the diet version. Right. The I don't digest. Want the rest of the crap. Yeah. Um, which is great, but it then means you've added complexity to your, to your application. Um, it means that that getting that data you now need to do in two different ways depending on which bit of it you actually want um and it still doesn't really solve the problem if later you need that data you've still got to go and get it it's just a question of am i getting it up front or not and, and the other part about that is also a simple actually this is a twofer but is is versioning of this 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 stuff of these apis because 
I've seen so many APIs that start out as version one. And this, that's literally in the URL. It's like, this is version one. And now you're going to have version two. And I'm going to guess that in, what, 10 years time, we're going to be like, this is a version five of our API. We still have all the previous versions. We had to keep them because anything you put on the internet has to stay there forever <laughs> until the sun burns out or whatever. It's, you know, you've now put something public that people depend on, right? So how do you make a version two? You have to like not fix it as you go along. I like as an example, right? So if you have, let's, let's say a tweet, right? And you now add tags to a tweet. Um, and I don't mean like hashtags, I mean like, you know, normal tags in a system, right? Or categories that this tweet can come under, right? So if you've now added that, adding that that um, key in the, in the result is fine because if you weren't using it before, now you have it, right? And you don't care. But if you had another key that, for example, had the date in a certain format, but now you change that format, like all the clients are going to break. Yep. Right, so like if if you change the date format, for example, from what something stupid to UTC or something, right, you now have all the clients are going to break, and you either say, well, okay, well this change, which is kind of important because we want to do other features, like you know, this was tweeted four hours ago, but in a different continent or whatever, um, you now have to wait till you release your version two. API, so you now have all these features that get stacked up to your version 2, right? Or you get a situation where actually you're pushing out semantically numbered versions of your API. So you're now on version 1.1 or 1.1.2. And you, and you want to just upgrade, so people are now have to have a variable for the, for, the, for the version of your API that they're using. It's pretty messy. Yep. Um, I mean, it's, it's to be honest. If you think about it, it's actually not that far off. Just writing software, anyway. No, you're right. You know, if you're the trouble with APIs is you're inviting other people into your party, um, in the same way that if you were writing a library for use in an application or what have you, you have to be sensitive to these requirements. For some sure. reason, I think APIs of web APIs have have really thrown this into sharp relief in a way that maybe you know plugins or libraries haven't and i think by and large that's been down to um i'm going to use the word arrogance i use it carefully of of the api provider twitter mm. being a famous famous example of this they changed the all, they did, all i think their 2.1 release yeah um, and they dropped a whole bunch of things that made working with it really easy. Um, yeah. And they also um, applied a whole bunch of rate limits and what have you. Mm. Um, they very much made it clear that it was their API, you were just using it. And, and a lot of this has to do with documentation of that API, right? Because now you have to go and read and find out, okay, you've changed this. And to be honest with you, developers are not very good at this. So, okay, yeah. People like Facebook and Twitter are going to keep their documentation up to date because they're providers mm -hmm. of a service that's, you know, and they have the, the capital. But if if smaller companies, they just suck at documentation. No offense. I was using, and I don't want to name and shame uh, oh, zero. Um, the company, but they had a change in their API that was actually, yeah, they had documented it in a blog post somewhere. 
And that was like a day I'm never going to get that's, back, right? That's robust documentation practice. Well, right? I think they hadn't made it into the documentation, but it was like, why is this not working? Why is this not working? I'm looking at all the different attributes to the object that you're meant to pass for something to happen. And they said, oh, yeah, you have to do this. But that was in a blog post, and I only found out by a whole bunch of Googling and, and stuff like that. So I have issues with them. I'm sure they've updated it now. But um, And... Documentation is a pain in the butt, especially when you're having to describe your data. That that automatic stuff that that you used to have with SOAP that now you don't have with REST. And yes, there are stuff out there that that there's stuff out there that will help you with this, right? There's what Swagger, which is yeah, so which you've is got an API um, doc writer, yeah, an attempt to. Um, provide automated documentation generation. Uh, Swagger is a great example of this. And it requires that you've thought about designing your API or architecting your API in a certain way, which you should do anyway, right? Because you're not just going to chuck it out there. Um, one of the main benefits of Swagger is it's a design, um, descriptive design language and a documentation portal. And it will actually generate um, it, they provide tools that will actually generate kind of the base of your API for you mm. and will generate client SDKs. Right, which, which is can good. be really useful. Um, the trouble is, a lot of that only works if you are very, very careful about adhering to best architectural practice when you're designing your REST API. Mm -hmm. If you decide that you want to go off piste or you're feeling a bit rushed and you're just not going to, you're going to half ass it. Or you might Swagger have clients that are beating over the head saying, I want it to do this like this because this is what our, cli our clients need, right? Yep. I mean, this is or the, the real. You've got backwards compatibility issues right. that you're trying to maintain. I mean, this is the re realism of developing stuff. It's like we think, oh, we live in this development utopia, but the fact that we have people that are generally paying us or bosses that say we are doing this and this is, this is the goal of the API is a big part of it, right? Yeah, and how often do you actually get to Greenfield an API? Oh, I wish every day. No. <laughs> if every API was built from the ground up, they would all be perfect. Yeah. But even then, they wouldn't because requirements change, right. stuff gets added. Uh, the minute you put it out there, it's, it's this living thing. So I think we've kind of shifted around some of some of the issues um that face almost any api but i think they started to to really be hammered home in rest because you don't have that hard connection back to a definition right it's very hard to break a soap api yeah it was well, very hard to use it but once you use it it's very hard to break it yeah sorry yeah it's, it's very hard to implement it but actually once you've got it all working in theory, you can then change it and what have you, yeah. and the WSDA will update, and it will either stop working completely or it mm. will just work. Yeah. Whereas REST is much more fluid. Um, we've got all these things that can be tweaked and changed and what have you. So as an API provider, you need to be more mindful of how you're managing your changes and your versions. As an API consumer, you, you really just need to be aware that when they tell you they're about to deprecate version 1, you should probably do something about it yeah. and not throw your toys out the pram. Yeah, no, because it, you're literally using a living, changing thing, right? I mean, code should be a living, changing thing as time yeah. goes on. I mean, this is the point of technical debt because you get into very quick technical debt if, you, if you're not paying attention to your external resources, right? Whether that be a database, because if a database changes, you'll make changes to your API, right? In, you know, 
if your internal database changes, you should just look at, at REST as, as as your REST resources that you're using as the same thing. You know, it's a just a resource that you use that you must you know stay on top of. Yeah, metaphorically. So, how do we set about designing a good API in RESTful terms? Well, you just sit down, you open up index.js, you start getting Express in there, and and you're done, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, totally. done. Or you maybe have to start actually talking to the people that are going to use it, maybe? I think, or oh, am I being a very uh, generous We're here? actually going to do requirements gathering from our users. Yeah. People, wow. Right. Uh, how? No, wow. Uh, yeah. Instead of just sitting down and writing it, I think is find out what they need to get from you, right? Because And what they need to give you. So that the output would be, you know, uh, so the nomenclature, so the resources that you're providing have got a name that makes sense, I think. Yeah, so I think part of it is start thinking about what resources they need, start thinking about what they're going to try and do with them. Um, because one of the things that we'll often, we, we just hide it away in our in our application logic, the the concept of, say, um, a, a, a transaction that involves two or more objects. Uh, and we just kind of wrap it up. We've got the code. It works. At the same time, when you start to expose that kind of workflow to a user, you'll find that actually your your nice internalized solution doesn't work. Right. So, what are the, what do they need to access, and what do they need to do with it? Is is key. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff uh, around that, but there's also you know one thing that I'm saying here is that, is that you need to also say is like who are your users and how they're going to use your system, right? Because we were talking about the the weird way that SOAP would protect you know that the ws security was wrapped around it but now we've got like this idea of oauth right oauth one and two as well which is another nightmare of, of implementation well i found yes. it you know i mean it's, I think, it's standard yeah. but it's every time i've tried to implement it not tried i've implemented it but it's it's just been back to the drawing board for some reason maybe i don't implement yeah, it enough I mean, it depends, I, I suppose, very much on the language you're using. There are now, I think most languages have reached the point where there's um, a standardized library around the standard um, to avoid that need to rework the sure. OAuth wheel every damn time. But even within OAuth, um, and let's, let, let's face it, for those who, who have been living under a, uh, a web development rock, OAuth is a mechanism for securing access to resources right it's very flexible it's very powerful it is on the face of it very secure um and it has become kind of the standard mechanism for securing um publicly available restful apis right right um i mean and maybe you should go like very quickly through it so essentially what happens is like you try to use an api you have to pass in a couple of tokens it then generates some tokens and sends a token back to you, and then you use that authentication token for the rest of all your transactions. Yeah, and the reason that yeah. the reason that OAuth has become so popular is because it allows you to do very easy delegation of access to information. So you, as the user of a, a system, can say, "Actually, I want to grant API access to this system as me." Right. Um, and I want it to have the following scopes or the following kind of permissions. And it kind of handles it all. 
um, you know, if it's well architected. Um, from a user's perspective, they get a really nice workflow. They just get to go. And I think there's like five different authentication patterns for OAuth 2. Okay. There's the there's the right. whole, you know, you can get redirected and sign in. There's right. an offline one. So there's if, one with a code. So, for it's example, crazy. like uh, a good example of OAuth happening is when you go to a website and it says sign in with Facebook or mm-hmm. sign in with GitHub. And you and a little pop-up comes in that's from GitHub that says, hey, would you add this, like to uh, let this application access your your data? And then you go in. That's literally your one pattern of OAuth, which works for the web quite well, but doesn't work so much for mobile apps as well. Uh, so they have a, a different pattern, um, which is all yeah. very interesting. Uh, but of course, there's other simpler ones called HTTP authentication, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Which is uh, well, HTTP's terrible. got auth built in. Um, yeah, but it's not a very good auth, if I remember right. Is it, is it literally it's perfectly like... good auth. What are you talking about? If we if there is nothing wrong with HTTP authentication, if you assume a couple of um, quick um, prerequisites, firstly, HTTP auth should never be run over HTTP. It should right. always be run over HTTPS, right? Because the credentials aren't encrypted at all. There's no real inherent security in in the way that the credentials are transmitted. So that's one. Two, make sure that either your API is smart enough to have handled the scope and all the rest of it because you don't get anything other than a username and password. It is pure authentication. Oh, right, yeah. An authorization or anything like that, right? Yeah. If you want to handle authorization, you have to look to your application layer to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, The reason that I love HTTP uh, authentication, uh, certainly when contrasted with OAuth 1 or 2 or 2.1 or whatever, is every HTTP client in the universe already knows how to do this. It's literally part of the spec so for it to be an yes. HTTP client. So if you have something that can make HTTP calls in your application stack, you can already do this form of authentication. And what's, and what that's interesting, and maybe we should do an episode about this, is this is where the Internet of Things comes in, because you might go, well, all our computers can do HTTP and have got great clients and blah, blah, blah. But now you're talking about that you know, uh, light switch that's hitting up your REST API you know, with a very, very simple microprocessor in there with an ARM microprocessor, you know, that doesn't have a, you know, high stack or high level of of knowledge, of capability. No, so, it knows how to connect to things, how to send data and what have you. But in theory, if it knows how to do HTTP, if they've done it right, it should know how to do HTTP authentication. Right. So that that's where it comes, is becoming more and more important now. It's kind of weird. Now we're getting to stage in web development that we're kind of going backwards we went like well now we have machines that are connected to the internet through multi-gigabit you know internet connections but now we're going to develop for stuff that doesn't you know (laughs) going back we had this sweet spot maybe back in the early 2000s that we didn't have to worry about it but now we have like the internet of things and we have mobile phones that have you know that we have to write for stuff that potentially is offline at some point at one point we're not going to have anyone offline by the way, just saying. There won't you think? Be, yeah. There will never be... That's just going to be it. Off, off, offline is going to become a thing of the past. Yeah, there'll be nothing that's not offline. But, um, yeah, sorry, I, I, I digress on, on that point. But. It's, a, it's a good digression, though, because it does speak to um, the importance of, when we're talking about certainly APIs, which we are, um, considering 
flexibility uh, and making sure that you've built in protection against this kind of stuff. So um, a really good example um, from a real world was we, we built a system that used GSM okay. to send little packets of data to an API. Um, but because it was GSM, uh, and this was actually literally in the field, not just the field, it was in a field. <laughs> um, and the connection wasn't always great. And sometimes the packets wouldn't make it, sometimes they would. And we had to put a surprising amount of engineering weight behind that process mm -hmm. um, and making sure that actually both the client, which was pretty, that we were lucky, the client was pretty smart. It wasn't a dumb light switch. We had some, some wiggle room. But also the server was, sorry, I'm pausing because there was just a ridiculous roll of thunder. Yeah. I, um, I think we all heard that. That's uh, it's either that or plane, <laughs> you know, dive bombing. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm going to hurry this up because this may be my last podcast. But yeah. So we we had to make sure that both the client we, we we were lucky we had some some flexibility there, but also the server was aware, and we had to build in things like message sequencing and and all of this stuff that you kind of get uh, or just forget about if you just assume it's like well we're connected. Uh, it's like actually no, you're not. So when you're building your API you need to think, well, do we have a guaranteed solid connection? Also, is it important that all of this data gets back? In our case it was. It had to we had to know that we'd got all the information. Right. Um but if it's if it's just the, you know, pulling down I pictures think, of, of your car from Instagram, it's probably not so critical. I think one of the, the easy ones to do is maybe do like a hashing system saying like this is like this is the message, here's the hash for the message. Now now you've got the message and you can check whether that message matches the hash or something like that. Yeah, yeah. so this is, uh, what's it called, HMAC. Okay. There's a whole protocol for this. Okay, someone else <laughs> so has got there before me. Hash-based method authentication, I think it's it stands for. But this is quite cool, and that also lets you do kind of signing as well. You can have a shared secret between the client and the server. Um, but it's, it's, it's even more than that. It's like, did this message actually get there? What do you do about a message that didn't get there and retrying it? Because TCP and HTTP are great at this at the packet level, but they're not so great at the API request level. You know, if the HTTP request fails, what does the client do? Because the server won't necessarily know about it. Right. Um, or if it Doesn't care gets about disconnected. It. <laughs> you know, is it important that it knows? Are there other protocols that you could use? You know, because fair enough, we use REST and HTTP for a lot of stuff. It may not be the best choice, depending on the kind of data you're needing to send between systems. Right. If it's, it, I mean, going back to the old days of like text files, but we had like different protocols, which is like the first bit in, in a file is this, the second one is this, the third one is this. The next four bits are going to tell you what the information is and, and, and things like that, you know, especially if you need very compressed formats that are opposite to XML and to JSON, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, JSON can be made pretty light, right? You can right. have a little translator on, on the client side, a little translator on the server side, and you can just swap out variable names and object names for single letters, and you can make it all nice and tidy mm -hmm. and, and, and tiny. And frankly, you can gzip the crap out of this stuff, right? Exactly, because it's just text. You can, you can compress it at the transport layer, and it's all good. Um, but even then, you think, well, there's probably more efficient and effective ways. Anyway, we kind of circling back to authentication... Um, OAuth, let's face it, it's it, it's around, it, it's not going anywhere, unfortunately. It is a bit of a mission to implement by hand, Yeah. although increasingly I don't think you have to do that anymore. There's probably a library that you can use. Um, oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, the problem I had with it was a few years back, we had to implement OAuth, but on the server side, actually create our, 
our own OAuth server rather than connect mm-hmm. to one. And I had to get my head around all of that, you know, front and back end stuff. Um, which is good fun. Which Especially is good given fun. that when you're following the spec and you're like, I, okay, I've read this three times, I still don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, we had a lot of uh, charts and diagrams and, and boxes with arrows going one way and and things like that. Um, yeah, once you get the once you get past the initial handshake and you're kind of like I think I've got this and then you get into scoping you're like oh crap no no yeah, we haven't got yeah. this at all yeah I've totally, I no lost it lost it yeah. I and mean, the other thing is don't don't write your own OAuth server right right you just grab one there there are ones out there but depending on the project you may not have a choice you might have to so OAuth is around to stay there's also um, the the kind of new kid on the block which is a pushback against um, I think the complexity of OAuth. And tries to make it a bit simpler. This is, um, I okay. think, it's pronounced Jot, even though it's written JWT. This is JSON Web Tokens. I used one very voice. briefly. Um, I use it for. Uh, and how did um, you find the experience? Annoying because you have to have encryptions um, patterns on the client and server that match the same thing. Now some libraries do encryption one way, and some others do it another so basically what you're trying to do is end up with two this token right that is made up of multiple things and hashed together to make um something new and then you compare them <laughs> and now if you got on the on the server creating the token and on the client creating the token and the client can be another server technology it's when they mismatch that you spend hours trying to figure out why and um, because they're basically encrypting a yep. packet and saying here's the hash of this packet i'm sending you the packet and the hash of the packet uh, an encrypted hash, and that was what was getting to me. So I have played with it, but uh, it, it was for a whole day, and I didn't have a happy day that day. I mean, this, to be honest, I've run into with OAuth, actually, where you end up with slightly different uh, or very subtle variations in the implementation of like a hashing algorithm, um, where you've missed the fact that... I mean, the classic one for me was when you're working with a language which deals with native, uh, natively deals with binary byte streams, and then you're working with one that doesn't. Uh, and it's like, uh, there's an option that I've completely forgotten to put in here to make sure that everything's binary uh, mm-hmm. or make sure that everything's UTF um, right. and all of these different things that can cause issues with encryption. I think JWT, uh, right. Jot, call it whatever you will, um, kind of got a lot of traction because it's really lightweight. It's just a thing that you can send with the packet um, and it's meant to strip away an awful lot of the complexity of OAuth, but at the same time give you more than you get with HTTP basic auth. Because it does va- it validates the, the packet in a, a standardized way, which you could do, you could roll your own using, you know, hashing or HMAC or whatever, right? Okay. Um, but it kind of gives you all of this in one nice standardized framework. Um, at the same time, yeah, implementation can be a little bit tricky because uh, you need to make sure that everything's on the same page in terms of the protocol and um yeah and 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 when things go wrong is 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 your part of encryption so you're going like yes i'm getting two yeah. strings that do not match and that that was a problem there's no feedback in, in that that's that's a problem that i had with it but yeah overall it's actually a very very good good thing if if you get past that part 
But I don't know. And let's face it, debugging encryption problems, It's there, there's no tools yeah. there. It's just, no, this isn't that. Yeah. Right, I will start okay. turning things on and off to try and work out why. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I didn't do the binary thing. But that this is like the end of the day. This is a five o'clock finding after like eight hours of working on it. Um, Good times. I mean, are there any other? I suppose there are probably myriad roll your own authentication there's right. um, there's passing in I've headers passing various information yeah, in headers and a fairly good pattern is like the api key model um so you get an api key right. just a static string linked to your account um and you pass that, this that's up usually, using either yeah, that, a header or yeah that's usually when uh, implemented in kind of server to server communications over ssl you know it has to be all be encrypted because if anyone sees your api key then um mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the API key one is one I've seen quite a lot, and it's actually the most pleasant one because <laughs> you just copy the, the API key. beautifully simple to work with, right? right. Um, and the nice thing about the API key is that, generally speaking, it gives you a whole bunch of different options as well. You can put it in the query string. Mm-hmm. You can put it in the HTTP header. Sometimes you can put it in the HTTP auth block. Mm-hmm. Um, you can put it in the body of your request if you want. Um, so there's all sorts of flexibility, but it does have the same problem as HTTP basic. Yeah, you've got to make sure it's secured. Right. Uh, potentially, you need to look at key rotation and and you know similar stuff. Um, and realistically, unlike OAuth, which is an, a nice per client grant, mm. the API key is well. Everybody using that API key, if you need to rotate that key, they all have to be reconfigured and do their thing. Of course, you're meant to use different API keys per client, but let's face it, who does? So that's how we kind of secure all of our APIs, but we haven't kind of solved the main problems that we have, which is, well, inbuilt documentation, right? We've got uh, mixing data. We've got like overfetching and stuff like that. So someone that has fixed that is uh, a project called GraphQL. Have you heard of that? I have. This is the new kid on the API block, right? It's newish kid. I mean, considering, well, uh, I think that they released just before uh, Sublime Text 3 started going into beta, so back in like <laughs> 2012. Yeah, there's a new new uh, kid on the block that, that's making waves. Um, by, by me saying that, I've literally made it least appealing to all the new hipsters. Um, but essentially, it was developed by Facebook. And I don't know if you remember back then, they had like the mobile app went from, I think, being... Um, like uh, an app into being like a web app, you know, like a web kit within an app. So they had it was like, a, it was a web wrapped app. So they they dropped native and they said, no, we're not doing native anymore. We're doing HTML5 because we uh, can do it better and it's better and we're better. And yeah, and look look yeah. how fast it is. So they had to build an API for that, right? And of course, being Facebook, that they've got like a brain pool there. So they got a whole bunch of people to go there. And of course, they're thinking like, well, this is a mobile app. We don't want to do all those things like overfetching and and things like that, you know, because it's a mobile. And back then, yeah. you know, you had like just three G or Edge and three G. <laughs> and their data is fundamentally very rich in terms of interconnectivity, and yeah. you know, every object has a ton of other relationships to other objects. Your photo is liked by n people, and those people's profiles need to be pulled in, and what have right. you. So they're really dealing with a, a full kind of network of data with almost every request. And also, an example of that would be not just having 
not getting the full profile of each person that's li- li- liked your picture because you don't need a full profile. You need their name and a link to their to their profile, maybe, mm-hmm. right? If, if you're thinking about the widget, right? But you might want to enhance it in the next version that you actually bring in their photo, right? So they needed to have something that you're able to extend that API from the client side rather from the server side. So instead of having a, here's a digest timeline with you know x amount of items and each item including a photo brings each people is being able to say in the client actually in this context i want to get the timeline with photos or i want to not get the timeline with photos being able to essentially do like sql right being able to say what you want from the server and that's what is just being returned and only that um and And this is this is something that just to quickly kind of quantify it so this is something that rest has been traditionally quite bad at yeah because when we do our get request so i want to get photos it's very much on the server what that data ends up looking like or i have to start passing in things like query string filters and slim down mode requests and all the rest of it but fundamentally it's hacky as hell right because there's no way to determine it's it's scope of my of my returned data right get what i'm given so, yeah, so the Facebook developed it back in 2012, and they finally published it as open source in 2015. Um, and they've actually published a specification for it. And the nice thing about it is that it's both a client and server spe- specification. So you could say, if you say, what is GraphQL? It's kind of like the client that goes to ask it and the server that returns it. And one of the great things about it is that it's self-documenting. And literally, the documentation of it is how you define it. So if you define it, let's say if you're using Node, and you define your GraphQL um, endpoint, right? you say what objects you have, because that's how, how you have to define them. And you have mm-hmm. this idea of resolvers, um, which I don't want to get too much into it, but it's, it's essentially saying, here's my resource. This is how you go and get it. But you can do that hierarchically. So if you say, this resource has a lot of other resources, so let's look at... Um, Again, Star Wars metaphor here. Here's a person, Luke Skywalker. How many droids do they have, right? So you can go and get a person and get their droids. And the get the droid thing knows the context is coming from Luke Skywalker, from a person, right? So the resolver can go and get all this data with those relationships. And as well as asking for that, you can also ask for, well, just return me their names. So R2D2, C3PO. Yeah, so you can bound the return data, but presumably you can do that at the, um, I don't know exactly what the terminology is, but the, the entity level. So you can say, actually, I want to get you know, um, yes. the full profile of this individual and all of their droids, but I only want the names, and all of their vehicles, but I want the names and the date that they were registered in a photo. Yeah. And, exa- yeah, and that's exactly that. And this is why it's called hierarchical, because you'd start off with a hierarchy going, give me a person with an ID of one, let's say Luke Skywalker, and you can't actually, or I might be wrong, I need to read the spec a little bit better, you can't say, just give me everything about him. You can go, give me his name, give me this, give me this. So you define what is brought back. So there's not like a select star kind of I don't think so. There might be, but I don't think so. I mean, and it's against exactly what they've put in place very specifically. Because so, we don't select star anyway, right? Right, exactly. That's bad. So that's why they didn't do it. But uh, because the documentation comes back, you have clients which are, um, uh, they can do like, they can fill in the, the arguments, right? Because it's, as you go along, it tells you the person is made up of a, uh, of a, of a name, an age, a, uh, 
you know, whatever all their attributes are. So you can just add them. And it's kind of a very simplified JSON. It's even, you don't even need to put commas in it, right? So you just can go name, age, not name, comma, age, comma, whatever, equals one or whatever. It's actually very simplified. So you literally go, give me person, name, age, droids. And for each droid, give me the name and picture. Right? It's, uh, it's over radio. is a great way to talk about code. But... <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll draw you a picture in the show notes. Yeah. It's just going to be two droids. Yeah. Who but you are have the ones you're looking for. But you have this idea of strong typing. So you can say this thing is a string or this thing is an array of people or this thing is a an a, this property is an array of droids. Right. Oh, that's really cool because that's one thing that rest has always struggled with. You know, you get basic types but you don't tend to get a very good concept of, of object level typing or right. typing beyond say the the language that you're using to uh, represent it right and uh, and this is what, what what the massive power of graphql is and 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 fundamentally you build that there's ways that you can write specifications for it i don't think they finalized the spec on the specification of saying this is my model um because what you do is get like a model saying these are my types this mm. is kind of how they relate in the sense that Luke Skywalker has droids, right? And it's an array of droids. That's what this is, right? It's a it's an enumeration of droids, uh, and he has ships, and these are the enumeration of ships. So he has, you know, he he's related to the Millennium Falcon. He's related to movies, and these are the movies he's in. So that's an enumeration of movies. I mean, a lot of this sounds just sorry to jump in because mm -hmm. it does sound an awful lot like if you've done any work with any kind of ORM system, right? And the whole where we, we're used to defining in code our relationships, has many, belongs to, blah, blah, blah. It's not that not not that expressive in that sense because it's basically a language of how you can query. It's like, what do we have in our data? So it's basically saying he has, a, uh, one of his properties is droids, right? And it, that's an array of droids, right? Or he have home planet and what that should return is a planet. So you have an enumeration or you have a singular. So you don't have like a belongs to, well, you, I guess you can have that. No, there. sorry. I suppose what I was getting at is that these relationships um, that you're then using to to define your queryability probably already exist in your code. Yes. So it's not like we're having to reinvent something or represent this in a different way. It's actually just taking that you know, related data and saying, well, this is how we present it in a GraphQL context. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you can automatically get it out of your code or you can just generate this kind of stuff and then it'll generate you a client, right? Uh, most of the stuff that I've seen is done in Node. Uh, the Java one is using a either doing it manually because one of the parts about it, which is both as a, as, a, as a spec, is that you also have to define the resolvers, which is how I'm going to go and get this data in the context of this query. And the other thing, which is the worst naming ever, is called mutators. In other words, is how do we change the data, right? So you can have endpoints in your GraphQL. So this is a mutator for a person. This is how we add a person, like create person. And I take in a person. So you then create that object. But, but you don't have to create the object. You just create the, the, the arguments to the function create person. So it makes it a lot easier. It's like you just call that function in theory uh, by passing arguments and filling in the arguments. 
which is a lot easier and it gets over a lot of the problems that we've been talking about about this because with versioning you're trying to tell everyone that's changed but now intrinsically it tells people that it's changed is that now that the date is a, a certain format or that it now has a category in there it's because the, the, the doc definition talks to the client right mm -hmm. so the client before it when it prepares a query can actually compare it to the docs which is your api it's not like it has to go out to swagger or something like that to to go and get what the, the documentation for this is, is doing kind of what soap was doing it's like before you even submit it, it goes no this is wrong it doesn't match the the spec that we, we we've just defined I mean, in terms of actually chucking data between two different systems, which is the job of an API, mm. GraphQL does seem to solve an awful lot of the problems. It does, I would imagine, sacrifice a couple of points that REST capitalizes on. So, for example, caching that data, I don't know how easy that's going to be. Well, it, you end you, up with a kind of query cache style scenario where you're having to actually cache the the individual queries, whereas in REST we can just cache the endpoints. We were discussing sure. earlier a simple REST API. You could actually run it off of something like S3, right? Right. If the data isn't changing, you yeah. know, um, it, it can remain nice and easy to scale. Right. But then I guess it's always that trade-off. You get flexibility and power. Mm -hmm. But the caching would go slightly behind it again because what graphql the resolvers could be talking to to a cached system oh yeah well but you it's not an http application i'm just thinking right. you can't cache the actual response right i mean you can because it's all http but you're right so like you'd have like all these mixed responses and you just start caching them and building up a cache right because you just have different uris because if you look at it it's literally an http request as well so you could but it's 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 yeah, you, it's not as easy as saying like, hey, this is a file system. <laughs> this is like our resources, like slash yeah. uh, people. The one file is Luke. The two file is Darth Vader or whatever, right? So it's not as, as simple as that to have your eyes all about. But it gives you some many other benefits over REST that it actually depends like, well, are you going to be doing something like Facebook, which changes a lot, or you're doing something like the Swapi, which is a, a resource library? Yeah. Right. Something that doesn't change. So like the 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 data doesn't change very much. You know, when I think it's also does your does your data have relationships that are going to allow you to capitalize on GraphQL? You know, I mean, I just signed up for a Dark Sky API key. Okay. Um, that's a weather API. Yeah. I am literally sending them a request with a longitude and a latitude, and they're sending me back data. Yeah. There's no relationships in there. You know, they're not telling me what's happening um, three counties over or what clothes I should wear because there's <laughs> just no relationship. It's simple data. Right. You know, it doesn't need GraphQL. And it works just fine. And they can rewrite um, the, the file that uh, has your longitude and latitude each time, right? I don't know what the the actual implementation of it is. But let's say let's um, say they have a file for every lat and long in the world. They can just have a system in the background going to rewrite those files. Yep. And as you and go and get it. Changes. As and when the weather changes. Yeah. Um, but then at the same time, if you think of most most systems that we write, you're probably going to start building very early on relationships between your your different types of entity within the system mm -hmm. and the minute you've got those relationships you start to get into the, complexity the, the scales start to tip towards graphql 
is what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, even if you're looking at something like Twitter, it's like you can get so give me a person. Great, that's easy, right? Because it's like a, they're not going to change that much. But with their top 10 feed, okay. Now their top 10 feed might be retweets, might be tweets, might be likes or whatever. Okay, and then get the people that like that. So now we've inherently got like a relationship that we're going down the hierarchy, down the rabbit hole, you know, um, of getting that. One of the interesting things about GraphQL, about these kind of resources, is that one of the people that I saw, the people, the companies that recently I saw uh, implementing it was actually Git, uh, GitHub. Mm-hmm. And this makes a lot more sense because what you're trying to do a lot of the time in, in, in your APIs is is go go to this repository and go and get me the top ten um Committers commits but uh, and the and who the committers are. Right? And that's that's that three step thing. So I've got like a repository, I've got commits, and I've got, you know, contributors or whatever, right? So that already has these relationships where GraphQL can really help. And I think that they're moving to that. They have now a deprecated REST API, which I was quite surprised by that, that they've really gone all in for their GraphQL thing. It makes sense. It makes their lives easier. It makes the developers' life easier. Right. One of the things that I actually find fascinating here is that these concepts, you know, the, the, the idea of querying a graph of data um, is it's, it's not that new, right? We've got you know things like graph databases have been around for ages although i don't know if have you ever worked with neo4j no uh i've always wanted to i have i think i subscribed to their mailing list i think i recently unsubscribed yeah they, uh, they keep but, trying to invite me to things and i'm like that sounds really interesting but it's yeah miles no. away and quite expensive yeah. anyway um that's my problem uh, but yeah you know working with like neo4j they've solved this with their query language cipher and, and representations and i say we've got stable orm patterns now that mean we can we can represent relationships it the mind boggles to be honest as to how it took us this long to actually come up with an api paradigm that maps onto that mm. but well I, I don't think it's that it took so long it's not like a that we've come in. This is a, yet another implementation of it. We had SQL. That's a great paradigm. Like the SQL language, we've had it for ages because you have one table, which is an object that relates to other tables and stuff like that. We've had HQL, which is how objects talk to each other. In I mean, all internally. Um, it's now moving this to, I say the web, but through to HTTP and making it accessible to to machines and and developers to to talk to each other right or yeah because uh, developers reason, make machines talk to each other for some reason they decided that sql as an api transport wasn't a good idea <laughs> <laughs> it isn't a good idea like i hate sql but that's another that's fun we should have a whole episode why does mark hate sql um, it would just be. I'm not even gonna. You can just record that one. You I, don't I just, need me. Yeah. You can just rant for an hour. Well, I just got a recording of you going. Mm-hmm. 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 And I just add that uh, interspersed in the episode. But um, it's not SQL itself. It's in the, every time I see an implementation of it, it just makes me shudder because they make so many mistakes. But anyway, this is not that episode. So uh, let's have a. I mean, we've we, we've got the kind of state of play. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, GraphQL up and coming, REST maybe falling away a little bit, um, at least in those use cases where GraphQL is more appropriate. SOAP still alive and kicking. What do you think's next? Because we spoke a little bit about IoT. We're going to have more and more um, devices emitting and consuming data. 
Um, you got any any insight into what could be the next big thing? I think the next big thing is going to be smaller. Actually, I think it's going to be smaller. Big thing. The small. No, no. The next big thing will be being smaller. Is is having less overheads on all these systems. I think we're going backwards a little bit in technology. Not backwards because that is because we we are now getting technology that, for example, I have my connected doorbell, and that needs to use a very low power. And it's not so much about bandwidth. I think it's more about power, right? So either uses Bluetooth or uses Bluetooth LE or uses something like that that needs very little power. So you don't want to be sending too many pings. You don't want to be sending too much data because that literally yeah, it's, it's runs down the battery. Because obviously all of these things are a trade-off. So you 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 know you can't run um, a Xeon processor in a, a connected doorbell because the processor is too hungry. It uses too much juice. Right. At the same time, you can't have an always-on 4G connection because that type of radio requires too much power. Um, so you're already starting to, to compromise down and down and down and down. I suppose the the API languages and implementations and, and variants will naturally have to adjust to keep up with this and to accommodate it. Right. So, and, and this was, I think, the problem with REST. That REST was good, was cacheable, is like a standard protocol, is brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. But the, the client might just need like, here's like the three points from your face that I'm going to send to the to the facial recognition system when you come to your doorbell and it just needs a yes no answer right actually rest would be quite good at that <laughs> um, oh so no no, no you're your point uh, and it is good for that but if that was all that the the server api was providing but i bet you it wouldn't right yeah. because you'll have a range of clients that'll be using it like your macbook that will send like location data that will and it wants to come back with your address and you know how many wives you have or something like that <laughs> One, just one. Yeah, just one, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the one thing I was going to say is that actually, whilst we we can we can we can kind of wail on on rest a little bit. Let's not forget that it does fundamentally power the entire web. Oh yeah, no, I, I was not um, you know, wailing. It's doing on rest. a pretty good job. Yeah. But at the same time, even that you see it starting to change. You know, as we're rolling web sockets in, mm. you know, even it's it's last bastion uh, is starting to get nibbled away at the edges as and, and that's more of a less of a requirement for um smaller data but it's more of a requirement for real-time data or you know, right. regular updates the stuff that actually rest in http not so great at and there are some but also the, the other thing is and i don't know how this affects but i'm just throwing this in the mix is that http2 now we don't have those big problems about doing multiple connections right so mm -hmm. we've a bit off topic but you know we've been it's been hammered into it like you know compress all your javascript into one file compare all, all your css into one file use sprites you know try and comp make your web page do the least amount of uh, HTTP calls, and if you can do it, spread it over domains. And now with HTTP two, that goes out the window because it doesn't matter how many requests. The overhead per request is now it's so little. Yeah, uh, are gone. I'm quite glad about that because I hated making sprite sheets. Right, I hated working with them. Pretty right, horrible idea. Um, because we had to use CSS all the time, which is about the worst language ever. But uh, I digress. But you see, okay. you get my point. That is like this is where we're going. Uh, that a rest might stick around for a while. Is is got legs on it? Is um, 
it, with HTTP two, it doesn't matter that you have to make five or six requests to get all your I think data. I'd be, I'd be really interested to see what kind of patterns emerge, if any, in in the RESTful world to counter the very issues that GraphQL solves. Um, whether or not that's you know somebody actually finally formalizes a, a specification for determining the contents of the return, hmm. um, or I mean we've got stuff like HeyOS, we've got um, HAL um, that deal with linking data, and and whether or not somebody actually turns around and says well actually HTTP three now has this kind of automatic concept of pulling in related requests and all of a sudden it all kind of goes away I don't know, but I'm not that good at telling the future if i were i'd probably be a lot richer than i am mm. now um, both you and me I buddy will, both you and me <laughs> i would just wait and see what happens with no small amount of anticipation yeah well i think that's a great place to to uh, stop um and remind everyone that they can uh, find us both on the internets um because we do say hello from the internet so we are on twitter at mark drew and at rob dudley and at localhost FM is our Twitter handle. You can always email us at show at localhost.fm or look out for us on YouTube. I have to put the last episode up, um, my bad, onto the YouTubes because we if that's how you like consuming your your podcasts. I realized a really good use case of our YouTube channel, by the way, yesterday. Go on. On the PlayStation. Really? Yeah, I have I can I have YouTube on the PlayStation. It's right there. Don't have to do anything. Just do a little right. search for localhost FM. Bonk. There you go. Lovely yeah, so playlist, if you want and you can localhost FM on your smart TV, on your PlayStation. Right. Your... I mean, it's crazy that you know we've got your YouTube enabled fridge, but actually that probably is a thing. Yeah. So if you want to listen to us on your fridge, then <laughs> check out the YouTube channel. <laughs> uh, and that's it. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you up next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.